is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference. He's a former FBI hostage and kidnapping negotiator. We're going to talk about kidnapping and hostage negotiation, complete with stories to illustrate his points, negotiation and emotional persuasion, three types of negotiators you'll encounter and how to size them up, of course, how to influence how other people size you up, and diffusing negative emotions, generating rapport in difficult situations. All this and much more in this episode of the show. And with that, welcome to the Art of Charm. We bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox where we discuss body language, nonverbal communication, networking, persuasion, negotiation, and everything else we teach here at AOC. In the U.S., just text CHARMED to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, here's Chris Voss. Chris, tell us what you do in one sentence. I advise people how to be more effective negotiators using hostage negotiation techniques. Right, so you're a former kidnapping negotiator with the FBI, or do you still do that? No, I don't really do that anymore. I left the FBI in 2007, an occasional random call on a kidnapping, but uh, my involvement never lasts very long. How did you get interested in negotiation, especially hostage negotiation and kidnapping? Well, I was a SWAT guy, and uh, I had a recurring knee injury, and I decided before I totally blew my knee out doing SWAT stuff, I'd do something else on crisis response. And, you know, I naively thought negotiators, they talk, I could talk, I could do that. I just wanted to stay involved in a game of crisis response, and that's how I got into hostage negotiation. It's kind of funny. It's like, well, my knee hurts, so maybe I'll talk people down from killing hostages. It seems like there's a jump there that maybe we're not getting full grip on that. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know entirely what it was. Talking to people, I was always fascinated with it. As a cop, police officer could walk into a situation with his words, change everything. Even walk in and say things while other cops are standing around trying to get things done and not being able to affect it. You know, I always loved doing that. I always loved having an impact with words that just totally changed the situation immediately. So I think I was always inclined towards that. And I was into SWAT. I was uh, slated to go to the SWAT team when I was a police officer. I got the FBI job just before that happened. I enjoyed SWAT. As exciting as SWAT sounds, I didn't realize the reality of it at the time was the SWAT guys stand around and wait for the negotiators to do their job. So, you know, the other thing about being a hostage negotiator is you go to the scene and you work and the SWAT guys watch. You know, SWAT guys may be in one shootout in his entire career, and I worked 150 kidnappings in my entire career. So it got much more involved. But the jump probably was I was looking for something to supplement what I was doing while I was investigating terrorism full time. If you can imagine that, you're looking for something to moonlight while you're investigating terrorists. Yeah, I can't imagine what you would end up doing that would be as exciting. Well, maybe you don't want something exciting. Maybe you want something very unexciting when your day job is negotiating with terrorists and crazy people who are holding people in banks and things like that. When I was in law school, we did some negotiation exercises, and when I became an attorney, we did some actual negotiating, and you get a little nervous beforehand. You know that little fight or flight? You get that, like, okay, this is, it's game time now. Do you get that when you're negotiating kidnapping and things like that, or does that go away after a while? 
Well, I got it in a good way on kidnappings. I mean, I got to the point on kidnappings that I just, I had it cold. I knew that in any given kidnapping, there's only four or five ways they could possibly go. I got a strategy for every single one of them. And I couldn't wait to get into it because, you know, it was very satisfying helping people and actually making a difference in in the darkest moments of their lives. So I was into it in a good way. Yeah, it seems like you're kind of the lifeline for a lot of these families and just anybody for the whole state or for the whole country, depending on who you're representing at that time. And in the book, Never Split the Difference, you've got a lot of different techniques that you use. And it's funny because in the beginning, you're talking with, I guess, these Harvard negotiation faculty members that are thinking, what's this cop doing here? We've studied this. What are you going to teach us? Tell us about that experience. When I was a hostage negotiator for the FBI, that business card was a great entree. I mean, you know, all I had to do was hand somebody my business card. They would politely look at it. And then suddenly the look that would come across their face when they realized what they were reading. It was pretty easy to get places and get into conversations. And that's how I got into the Harvard guys. I got my boss to pay for some executive ed training up there, just three days of training. I was really more interested in going up there and handing him my business card. I waited till Bob Manukin came by, the head of the program. And, you know, I kind of stopped him and said, hey, you know, I can introduce myself and handed him a card and waited for it to work its magic, which it did. And we started to talk and he walked me around. And those guys are always kind of interested. They're like, you know, so if I was a kidnapper, what would you say? I said, well, you know, I'm just going to ask you open-ended questions. Now, I realized that that answer kind of lulls people to sleep because I had learned some really just devastatingly show-stopping open-ended questions. I know the one that I'd been using for a while that stopped every terrorist and every kidnapper in their tracks on a planet. So I realized that this is a little bit of a lure when I say open-ended question. It sounds boring. And he kind of went, really? That's what you're going to ask me open-ended questions? I mean, yeah, you know, it's pretty simple. It's not that much to that. I ask you some open-ended questions. And he couldn't wait to try me out. so <laughs> And he's a good guy. I just knew I was going to catch him off guard because, you know, the ultimate way to say no in the entire world is just kind of kindly, calmly with the late night FM DJ voice just to say, how am I supposed to do that? And so he said, you know, so Chris, you know, we got your son. We need a million dollars. We're going to kill him in the morning. They don't give us the, the money. And I said, how am I supposed to do that? And he just, it was great. He just, he kind of blanked. He he didn't know how to react. You know, we were off to the races. So that was the beginning of a great relationship with a lot of really smart people up there that I really enjoy. And open-ended questions are interesting because essentially these are queries that by time they can have a wide range of answers. They're the opposite of closed-ended questions, which are things that can be answered with yes or no, right? Yeah, and a, a real short answer is, but the, you know, the how question is a killer question. What I'd learned in hostage negotiation and getting the same leverage in a business deal, there's great power in deference. And from a deferential approach, it's ridiculous how assertive you can get away with. The other side is never going to see it coming. It's a real stealth weapon. And especially a well-phrased open-ended question, what I do with that is I shift the burden of the entire situation over onto whoever I'm talking to. And not only do they not feel what I've just weighed them down with, You know, they feel empowered because people love to be asked how. They think it gives them an opportunity to show how smart they are. And it's it's amazing what it does. And so to say it's an open-ended question that can be answered with more than a yes or no is really to sort of under-describe the power of the dynamic. And I like the how question, especially in the book as you describe it, because it's 
the magic sword of open-ended questions. You're right. Just saying, oh, it's something that can be answered, can't be answered with yes or no, is an under-description. The open-ended question, especially the how do I get the money, how do I do this, you tell stories in the book about, I want to say this one was in the Philippines, maybe Nicaragua or Ecuador or El Salvador, but there was a story in which this guy who was an American had gone down there, he grew up there, he decided to be a tour guide, he got kidnapped, and the negotiator who was in the city ended up having to move back to the jungle where the hostage was, which is how you tracked him, because you kept using these open-ended questions. Can you tell that story? You're going to do a better job than me. Yeah, sure. I mean, the first case where we really tried, we made the shift from the classic proof-of-life question, which you see in Man on Fire and every other movie, which is basically your bank security question. You know, what's the name of Chris's first dog? Or, you know, what was the high school you went to? I mean, that just doesn't get you that far. And so I finally decided that we were just going to make a shift and we we're going to go to how do we know so-and-so is alive? We've got this kidnapping in, in Ecuador. Jose Escobar, Pepe Escobar, who's a friend of mine to this day, and he's a phenomenal human being. And we decided to make this shift. And I'm checking with all my guys in my inner circle. And I said, we're going to change abruptly here in what we're doing. And the guys I worked with at the crisis negotiation unit at the time, I mean, at that time, I was very lucky. We were the brain trust of the, literally the collection of the best hostage negotiators on the planet. So if I bounced stuff off them and they said that I was on the right track, I knew that I was. We decided to shift this into this case in Ecuador with like no warning to anybody. I sent my negotiators down there. I said, this is what we're going to do. This is a strategy. And they're a little rattled by it because it's new. But I say, look, do what I tell you to do. And they were good with that because I knew them for a long time. But the Ecuadorian, the Gaula down in Ecuador, I mean, they didn't like it at all. And we went through this and we didn't find out till after the fact until I debriefed Pepe at his home in up, upstate New York. I said, hey, you know, we kept asking this how question. He says, you know, that was really crazy because their negotiator who was supposed to stay in town until he had the deal cut, he kept coming back out to the jungle and saying, you know, these guys are asking me this question. I don't know how to deal with it. This is what I'm telling them. Am I okay? And it just caused an entire series of meetings of the kidnappers to get behind one strategy that they never would have had, ever. And that's when I realized that the how question causes a unification on the other side. You just got to be persistent with it and stick with it and not get rattled. And, and that's what deference does. And they're going to get concerned and they're all going to get together and it'll unify the team on the other side. That was the first time in any kidnapping that we'd ever worked, ever where we had caused that much coordinated effort that we wanted to have caused on the other side. It lined up with our goals. And that's when I knew that the how question was just monstrously powerful. How do we use this in everyday life? For example, most of us are not going to be negotiating with terrorists, crazy kidnappers. How do we work these types of things with normal people? Yeah, it's a great question. And I had come to learn in kidnappings that there's always a team on the other side. And I've come to learn in business negotiations, there's always a team on the other side. We were competing for some training with a multinational communications carrier recently who's trying to get better at negotiation. We found out from them that fully 50% of the, their deals that get killed get killed internally. In every business deal, there's always a team on the other side, and there are always people away from the table on the other side that are looking to lay back and snipe your deals. They want to kill those deals because they're not involved in the negotiations. They're mad that they've got no influence on the guys at the table. So the first chance they get, they're going to kill that deal when it comes back to the company. 
Now, the only way to beat that dynamic is exactly the way we beat the terrorists. Asking the how question, and some of it might even be proof of life for your deal. How do we know the rest of your company's on board with you? How do we know that this fits into your company's internal goals? How do the people who are going to implement this deal, how do they see this deal? Innocently asking these questions, your negotiator, just like our guy, just like our kidnapper in Ecuador, he's going to answer those questions or she's going to answer them. But just like our guy in Ecuador, they're going to be concerned if they have to answer them four or five times that they might be climbing out on a limb all by themselves. And they're going to go back to their team and they're going to ask the same question. This is what I'm being asked. You know, am I on the right track here? Are we unified? Proof of life of your deal in a business is every bit as important as proof of life of a hostage in a kidnapping. It's just it's a different commodity. Negotiation used to be this rational, logical, kind of getting to yes type of structure. And it looks like early in the book, you're taking feeling into account and you noticed over time, especially with events like Waco, Texas, and things like that, the Branch Davidian takedown, Trying to negotiate without knowing how to take feeling into account, you said, is like trying to make an omelet without knowing how to crack an egg. So why this transition to emotions and to emotional persuasion, I guess, in negotiation? Well, you know, that's a great point. You said negotiation used to be this logical, rational, getting the yes. Like bargaining, right? This rational bargaining. I give you this, you give me that. Thanks, okay, that's fair, bye. That kind of thing. And did we ever live in that world? I don't know that we ever did. Now, we tried to. I've read Getting to Yes. I bought Getting to Yes. It's still one of the best-selling negotiation books on the planet. I've never had anybody say to me, wow, I read Getting to Yes and immediately began to apply the principles that made a difference in my deal. You know, Getting to Yes is like trying to learn the English language by reading the dictionary. It's technically nothing flawed about it. You will go, well, how do I use this? You know, what am I going to do with this? When were human beings ever logical and rational? You know, there's this funny skit that uh, somebody found for me on Star Trek because I was telling them that, you know, there's this line that Spock says, you know, logic is a butterfly flying in the breeze. I mean, it just doesn't exist. We wish it did. But the reality that we've come to show now that they're actually putting wires in people's brains on brain science and scanning their brains, they're showing that every single decision is made based on what we care about, which by definition, as much as we hate it, and some people just tear their hair out over this. Every decision is an emotion-based decision. And the people that are tearing their hair out of it are actually proving the point. Those who want to argue it most are the ones that are the most passionate slash emotional about their decisions. And even my hostage negotiators, I'd have them read Getting to Yes, and they go, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Why can't I do it? <laughs> so, right. Why doesn't it work? Yeah. I guess if emotionally driven incidents like hostage takings were normal, you gotta focus on that. You can't focus on the rational actors in a business. And then we start to see the non-rational actors in business, like you mentioned earlier, the guy who didn't have influence over the deal who says, huh, this is somehow an affront to my ego, so I'm going to squash this even though it's a good deal for us. And it looks like what you discovered is that the emotional element is important regardless of whether or not you're negotiating in business or you're negotiating with terrorists or kidnappers. It's just that's always the underlying language is that of emotion. Is that correct? Yeah, the underlying language is always that of emotion. You know, the selfishness of what's in it for me. You know, not necessarily what's in it for a company and, and what's in it for me at the moment because I gave a talk last night where 
somebody pointed out, like, you don't know if the guy you're talking to across the table, his wife was screaming at him early this morning because he's not advancing fast enough. So he feels extra pressure to pay for that car that she wants. Or, you know, the boss yelled at him, the company's doing fantastic, but he hasn't closed the deal in a month and he's falling behind on his quotas. You know, you just don't know what sort of pressure the guy on the other side of the table is under, no matter how unified they may look on the surface. So there's always an emotional element. A friend of mine, an international banker, phenomenal guy, one of the most intelligently smart people, emotionally intelligent smart people I've ever met in my life. In his international banking role, his bank takes over a company in Korea. He's as American as it gets. He comes across as an American no matter what. So people are worried, what's an American going to do with our company? His first slide to the employees in his PowerPoint presentation, he had the title translated from English into Korean, and it said, what's in it for me? And as soon as he showed that to all these Koreans, they broke into applause. It doesn't matter who we are or where we're at. You know, the emotional aspects of what's in it for me is a driving influence on all our decision making. So we see negotiation as communication with results or applied people smarts. How do you size someone up and get a feel for what their emotional biases might be on their side? Yeah, sizing people up, it's a great thing to do. It's a great challenge. And it's where the delay to save time comes into because we're all under time pressure in business and we want to get the deal done quickly, which is going to cause people to size people up too fast. The other person's tone of voice is going to give you a lot of clues right off the bat. The guy who naturally speaks with almost what we call a late night FM DJ voice probably sounds a little bit more like the assassin's voice. I mean, this is the highly analytical guy. These guys come off, their tone of voice is being very cold and distant. I mean, very distant. And they're not. And they actually have no idea they're coming off that distant. But these are really analytical people, which means you ask this guy, gal, a question. They're not going to want to give you an answer till they've thought it completely through. And that's going to take at least 48 hours. So the tone of voice is an initial clue. No one other than an analytical person is going to talk in that kind of voice consistently. Although many of the analysts come to learn that a friendly voice makes for better deals, they're going to learn to act very friendly. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility 
at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. That's an analytical type of person. So they have that type of voice. They might lay on a layer of friendliness. But are there multiple types of negotiators that we're going to encounter? We believe there's three types. and We've got the data to back it up. One of those types is the analyst. The second type is the assertive, who's very direct. Donald Trump, assertive, shocking. Then there's a person we refer to as the accommodator, who's friend-oriented, very relationship-oriented. And really, these three types are the are breakdown of the caveman type, you know, because it's coming from our amygdala. Some people refer to it as the caveman brain or the reptile brain. And the caveman walking down a jungle path way back when he encountered something alive, he had one of three thoughts. Can I kill it and eat it? Is it going to kill me? Can I mate with it? You know, those are the three basic instinctive responses. Do I make friends with it? Does it kill me? Do I kill it? If it's going to kill me, do I have to get away from it? So those are the three types. That's in any instant where all our thinking starts is in the amygdala, and then it goes into our rational brain, and we come up with reasons that back up our gut instincts. And yeah, those are the three types. The world splits pretty evenly into thirds. I mean, I taught Chinese development bank personnel and I've taught Colombians, and I've taught Nigerians, and I've taught Iraqis. And I sit back and I look at them, and the group always splits pretty evenly into thirds. So the bad news for us as human beings, and that is, is that two out of three people we encounter are going to be different than we are. So you've got to adjust for type. Once we've figured out that there are these three types, what do we look for in each of these three types of people? And then how do we negotiate with each of these three different types? Great. Great question. Perfect. So the first thing is it's going to come up most at impasse and it's going to evidence itself principally. The first thing it's going to be in in the view of the use of time. An analyst is always going to think this is going to take longer than anybody imagines. So they tend to be very, very patient because they expect it to take a long time. The assertive is time is money. I need to get this done now. And they're in a big hurry. 
the analysts actually have kind of a secret joke about assertives. They like to say, you know, why take the time to get it done right when we can do it wrong now? That's their view of an assertive. And then the accommodator feels, you know, as long as you and I are enjoying each other's company, it's a great use of our time. And it doesn't matter if we get anything done because the relationship is much more important. So what we do with that is the first thing is just be willing to take a step back first. And a step back usually only takes three seconds. There's interesting data that actually indicates that a moment, if you will, is three seconds long. And in three seconds, you can get a good feel for the type. And then if you just adjust a little bit to resonate with them, and of the nine negotiation skills that we like, because we polled the types consistently across the board, all three types like what we refer to as labels. They tend to be drawn toward them, they want to interact, and they want to be more productive. And a label is just, it seems like something about this is bothering you, or it seems like you're concerned about this. Or even, if I know you don't like me, I'll say, it seems like I've been overly harsh. It's going to draw the other side much more quickly into the conversation, into a productive conversation, and they're not going to have their guard up, and you can move much more quickly. Right, so we draw people out so that the label makes sense, right? It's it's almost like if you're living with your wife or your girlfriend and she's being really quiet or she's shutting doors to the refrigerator just that much harder, instead of ignoring it and hoping it goes away, most of us guys know to say, it seems like you're angry about something. And just get it done, get it out, don't let it boil over you know, the next 72 hours because that's gonna be a lot worse, right? I'm not just saying women are like that, I, I mean, Everybody I know has that, myself included, where when people say something like, it seems like you're frustrated with this, I feel instantly better because it's then okay to discuss that. It's not a taboo topic. I feel like the steam valve is just releasing a lot of the pressure. And I can imagine pressure builds up a ton in not only negotiation, but especially in kidnapping or hostage negotiation or high stakes with millions and millions of dollars or with you know company in which you have equity, those types of high stakes negotiations, that pressure must build up really, really fast. Yeah, you're right. It's a great relief valve. It's different from venting. I actually don't like venting, but you do have to relieve the pressure. And you know, there's an old saying, you know, unexpressed feelings never die. And whether it's business or hostage negotiation, people harbor feelings. I mean, people harbor feelings in business interactions, and they hold on to them, and they will wait forever to pay somebody back. And they will never let it go until they get a chance to pay somebody back. And that's why leaving negative feelings in a business deal are just absolute killers, because if they can't pay you back, they're going to trash your reputation. We know how to size other people up. We know what to look for with the aggressive, the accommodator, and the analytical. Is there any advantage to influencing how other people size us up? Do other people do this consciously or subconsciously, and is there any advantage to maybe pretending to be one type while really being another, or is this a purely cooperative negotiation? Well, you know, I don't think you want to change your default type because there are advantages to each default type. As you get better at negotiation, you begin to see what other types are good at and you want to add those skills. You know, there's the old saying, you know, what got you here won't get you there. We try to counsel people, you know, that there are elements of the analyst that are really good and you want to know what's good and you want to know what the companion skills are from the accommodator that you want to add to your skill set. And the assertive, you know, you need to be assertive with what you need. Otherwise, if you don't get what you need out of a deal, you're not going to perform. The deal's going to fall apart. So you have to be able to assert on your behalf, just not in the blunt, aggressive way that, you know, we ascribe, unfortunately, or fortunately to Donald Trump. And I have great respect for Donald Trump and his abilities to get things done. 
And I got no problem with being assertive. I just want to be nicer about it. And then your deals stick. People want to cooperate. So it's about adding the positives of the other skill sets. You know, I don't like deception in negotiation. I don't like lying. You know, as a hostage negotiator, I always had a phrase, you know, don't lie to anybody that you're not going to kill. And they asked me about that at Harvard Law School. They thought that was really funny because they realized that, you know, as an FBI hostage negotiator, that's what I actually meant. But they worked very hard at the Harvard Law School when I taught negotiation there, getting people to understand that lying deception is a bad idea. It's a bad long-term strategy. You're going to pay for it. So I, I don't believe in trying to be something you're not. I do believe in respecting where the other person is coming from, and I don't see that as being exactly the same thing. No, I definitely see the difference there. And just to be clear, the reason that we never lie to somebody that we're not going to kill is precisely because that person will never trust us moving forward. We've permanently damaged the relationship, but if you're gonna kill them and they're dead, it doesn't really matter what their opinion is of you and whether or not they trust you, right? And that's true, And I, but I would always put the follow-on after that. But even if you kill them, People they know are going to find out about it, and you're going to pay for it anyway. Deception is a bad idea. I'm at a panel at a conference at Harvard several years ago, and you know some of the professors, all right, so let's give you a hypothetical. There's a terrorist that has a nuclear bomb, and you know that if you lie to him, that you could probably get the nuclear bomb defused, and you're going to save the whole city. Will you lie to him? And my answer was no, because number one, he's probably a better liar than I am anyway. And lying to him is a trap that he's trying to lure me into. So it's probably just a test. And secondarily, there's a really good chance he's going to find out before I get that bomb diffused, and it's going to go off anyway. So lying is just bad. You can't paint a scenario to me where I'm going to like lying. This makes sense, actually. So no matter what you do, lying is going to burn you. Is this something that you never do unless it's your absolute last option and the choice is kill the hostage taker or lose a hostage or two, that's the only time that you actually use deception? Yeah, you know, I would equate lying to dropping a nuclear bomb. No matter how righteous the reason for that is, you're gonna have to realize that there's gonna be radioactive fallout that you have to deal with for a very long time to come and your gain better be worth that long-term radioactive fallout because it is not going away. Tell us about the New York bank robbery at Chase. This was an interesting story that encompassed a lot of the techniques that you use. Yeah, the, the bank robbery with hostages at the Chase Bank, a number of cool things about that, and one of them is that even though bank robberies with hostages happen in the movies all the time, they happen in the entire country, the whole country, maybe once every 20 years. So I was, you know, the universe lined up for me to be able to negotiate a bank robbery with hostages. You really look forward to this stuff. This is the Super Bowl for you somehow. You know, it really is. It was the Super Bowl, and if you're going to play in the pros, you want to play in the Super Bowl, right? I mean, if you decide to make that decision, you want to get in that game. What's interesting, though, for you is it's not actually the Super Bowl where you got months lining up, you're strategizing, you're working on everything, everything's at peak. You wake up like any other day, you know, you didn't get enough sleep, you stayed up late watching the hockey game, you get up, you know, you didn't have time to get coffee, and then, da-da, Super Bowl right in your face, instantly zero warning. That's how this stuff crops up for you. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you go from zero to 100 miles an hour in, in probably about 60 seconds. It was an amazing situation. And actually, the day that it happened, I was waiting to do an interview with another guy that we've been waiting for to interview for quite a while. And Charlie Bodwin, a phenomenal hostage negotiator I worked with in New York, comes up to my desk. He says, man, there's a bank robber with hostages in Brooklyn. Let's go. I didn't hesitate. We jumped in his car and went. And, you know, we expect a guy to be rattled, trapped in a bank, 
you know, surrounded by the seventh largest standing army in the world, which is NYPD. And this guy gets on a phone and he is as calm and rational as you could possibly be. And he did something that taught me a great lesson, which is actually a great trait of very powerful business negotiators worldwide. I think Adam Grant probably wrote a piece about this recently that I read that said, you know, the most powerful negotiators in business will always use plural pronouns because they're trying to hide their influence on their side. And if you're talking to somebody on the other side of the table who's in love with a singular pronoun, the I, me, my, this is what I want, this is how I want to do it, that guy has no influence on his side of the table. It's kind of like, you know, going into one of the top bars in your entire city and the bartender says, well, this is what I have behind the bar. And he just got the job that day. It's not his bar, but he's trying to show that he's in charge. So people that use we are more in charge? Why does this conversely play out for us? The more influence somebody has with their team, the more they will use plural pronouns, the more they will say we, they, and them, because they know they have influence and they don't want to be cornered at the table. And they are the masters at deferring to the guy not in the room. And they've learned the hard way that if they accept the amount of decision-making and responsibility that they have and influence, everybody in business wants to get past the blockers to the decision-maker. And decision-makers know this. So if they come to the table, they have to hide. And the best way they can do that is say, you know, I, I got to run this by other people. We got all these other people on my side of the table. Man, the more that guy or gal lays it off the people are behind him, the more important that person is. So this is what this person was doing on the phone. And when you listen to a hostage taker on the phone, what are you listening for specifically besides the pronouns? You know, we start out first, we're listening for emotions. Because I'm expecting a guy who's rattled, you know, he doesn't want to get his head blown off by a sniper. No way did this guy plan on getting stuck inside this bank with 50 caliber rifles pointed at him. So he should be concerned for his life. And the moment he shows any sort of emotional concern, that's a thread that I'm going to glom onto and I'm going to pull it out. of. And we get on the phone with this guy and he says, well, you know, there are all these other people with me and I don't know what they're going to do. And these other guys, they are so much more dangerous than I am. And, and here comes one of them right now. Let me put you on hold because they're going to overhear what I'm saying. I mean, this guy was the master of deferring and deflecting. And we found out after the fact that he had lined up the whole bank robbery and manipulated everybody. And actually, some of the people that were involved in a bank robbery thought that they just went out to rob a cash machine that day. They didn't even know they were going to go in the bank and try and get in a vault. He was a master manipulator. And he did that by a number of things, by making himself look deferential and not in charge. And he was really great at maneuvering people like that. And it initially threw us off at the beginning. So you got a bank robber in there who brought a bunch of accomplices with him who didn't even know that they were going to be taking hostages that day. They thought they were doing basically some really ghetto kind of grand theft larceny where they were going to grab a cash machine and jackhammer the thing open or crowbar the thing open or throw it in a truck. And that was it. And then they end up in a bank with, like you said, the seventh largest standing army in the world surrounding them. Now you're on the phone with this guy. You've got multiple people on the phone and you're listening for different types of emotion. Why are there so many people on the phone talking and what else are you listening for? There's so much intercommunication. Actually, one person can't hear everything by themselves, let alone if they have to talk also. I mean, I've been in business negotiations with my colleagues when we went on a break and I was doing most of the talking 
And they said, wow, you know, the other side brought up this point. I can't believe you didn't say this. I've looked at him and said, I have no memory of them saying that because I was busy thinking about what I was going to say next. And when you're thinking about what you're going to say, you don't hear what the other side is saying. So you miss a lot when you're by yourself, which is why now we always negotiate important deals with wingmen, if you will. And typically I prefer having somebody else on my side, on my team in a business deal doing the talking so that I can do the listening and I can do the assessment. And it's the same way in a hostage negotiation. We've got up to seven people listening to everything that's being said on the other side because you can break down use of personal pronouns. You can break down adjectives of choice. You can break down the tip of the iceberg of the adjectives. You know what really matters to them, what they're most emotional about, depending upon the specific adjectives that they use. You can break down whether or not they're using profanity, whether or not they're using cliches. You can break down how long they speak to you, how long your conversation is, and how long they go for a break. I mean, there's so many different ways you can break down communication. If you got somebody watching body language, actually there's more information coming off their body language than is coming off from the words that they say. And you want to see how the body language lines up with the words. And we do that a lot at AOC boot camps. Congruence, does the body match what they're saying? Does this make sense? And and it makes sense that you've got multiple computers, multiple brains on each of these calls looking for specific things because not only can one person miss something, but also we're all subject to cognitive bias, right? We can get things wrong. One other trick that we've learned in our negotiations, which is why we like to have multiple people on both sides of the table, because while the speaker on the other side of the table is going to be guarded in his body language when he's talking, the people with him are not. And so they think you're focused on the speaker. When the speaker says something that they don't like or they don't agree with or that they think is wrong, since they don't think they're being watched, they will almost flip around in their seats because they think nobody's watching them. So another reason to negotiate in teams is to have your wingmen watching their wingmen because their wingmen are gonna be the most unguarded in their physical reactions. And thanks for listening and supporting the show. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to Chris Voss. That's interesting. So we're watching for incongruence, not only between what the person says and what their body says, but incongruence between what that person says and what their body says and what the other people's bodies say. That's like a different level of body language observation. You mentioned before as well, the adjectives, listening to the adjectives and what those tell us. What do you learn from adjectives or profanity or cliches? That's interesting. Well, because everybody, you know, we call it, what's their religion? I mean, everybody has stuff that they believe in that's larger than them, that they're dedicated to, that they'll sacrifice themselves for. Now, some people, it's their company. I mean, I've got one of my MBA students who's getting ready to go to work for one of the big three consulting firms. I mean, he walks around with one of their pins on the lapel of his jacket. I mean, he bleeds their color. And he believes so much in their mission that he sees it as being larger for them. So when you see someone being driven by what is larger than they are, and their adjectives are going to give that away or their cliches, you then understand how you can change some of your adjectives so that they resonate with you. As an example, I had one potential client that was a a born-again Christian, and he was always using these phrases, and he was talking to me about on this one particular deal how misunderstood he felt by his advisors. And he was trying to tell me how important he thought this deal was to his company. And he didn't want to bungle this responsibility. 
because he felt it was this enormous responsibility to the greater good of his company. And at one point in time, I said, you know, this is really a stewardship for you, isn't it? Now, this is just an observation on my part. I'm not trying to pretend I'm what he is. I'm just using a term that he resonated with. I'm not trying to say, you know, I believe in stewardship too. I didn't do any of that nonsense. I just used it in the same sort of description to recognize how he felt. And when I said to him, this is really a stewardship for you, isn't it? He went, you are the only one that understands me. And I got the contract immediately. So I didn't try to pretend I was something that I wasn't, but I did recognize it. I appreciated his point of view with respect, not trying to make him think that I was adopting it. And the resonance for that and the trust building is immediate. One of the things that you mentioned that you do a lot in these negotiations is that you slow things down. Going fast being a very common mistake that people make when they're negotiating, especially these high stakes kidnapping and hostage situations. Rapport builds over time. We've talked about that here on the show and we do a lot of rapport building at our live workshops, keeping things calm, building rapport over time, making it seem like time is moving faster than it is. And you also tie this in with, like you said, the FM DJ voice, the playfulness or the assertive voice and and things like that. To what extent are you using your own speech and body language or your accent or your vocabulary and your tone? You mentioned using adjectives or using similar maybe memes to build rapport, but are you trying to be more similar in every case, or is there a situation in which you would disassociate yourself from the other person? Well, yeah, first of all, slowing it down sounds crazy when we're all under time pressure, right? We like to use the phrase, this is gonna be a delay that saves time. You know, we find out that by slowing it down, you spend less time overall in a negotiation. And it's hard to see that until you start keeping track of how many conversations it takes to get something done. And you want to go from 12 conversations to three. And so your total time in a negotiation will be less. Each conversation will be longer, but your total invested time is less. So that's why you want to slow things down, because it actually saves time. Now, you only want to be similar to the other person. You know, that's very narrowly limited. If the other person is rattled, you don't want to be rattled. If the other person is excited and high-pitched, you know, well, so the theory that, well, I need to be excited and high-pitched also. So he thinks I'm like him. That's really bad advice. The only similarity that works or where you want to take people is you want to take people into a good mood because there's scientific data that shows that our brains work up to 31% more effectively when we're in a positive frame of mind. That's no small advantage. I like to be playful in a negotiation because it makes me smarter. And when I'm playful and I'm smarter, then that automatically is sort of infused in the other person's brain they get smarter, they're in a better mood, what means they're going to be better at thinking of ideas that benefit me. The missionary and mercenary combined at the same time. I want a better deal. I want you to be smarter because if you think you made a smart deal, you're going to implement it. And that's where the real money is made on implementation, not at agreement. And if you're happy with the deal, you're going to implement it and you're going to implement it in a very smart way. So if you're in a good mood, That's really the only time I'm going to mirror your mood because it's good for both of us. But if you're excited, if you're rattled, I'm not mirroring that at all because that's bad for both of us and I don't want to go there. I want us to go where we're both going to be productive. So that's sort of the only time I similarity works for us. You've got some pretty cool tactics that you use in the book and I want to get through some of these before we 
run tight on time here. One of them is using mirroring and an inquisitive voice to reword or to have other people reword whatever they said. And the example you gave was this old boss has this employee and he doesn't trust digital. You know, he's kind of this old crusty guy and he wants one of the employees, one of his team members to spend two weeks making two copies of every document. And she used one of your techniques, this technique in particular. Can you give this technique and teach us how to use this? I think this is really easy to implement and probably very useful for most of us. Yeah, mirroring is a great technique and it's repeating the last one to three words of what someone has just said. Or if you're real show off, you can pick one to three words that are the, an essential component in the middle of what they said. But, you know, you can almost always repeat the last one to three words. And this sounds stupid. And sometimes we refer to it as a Jedi mind trick and it is ridiculously effective. We talked about the three types before and mirroring is one of the very few skills that work very well with all three types. And what it actually does is it opens up people's brains while they're in the midst of explaining stuff. And if you ever tried to open somebody's thinking up while they're explaining, you realize that it's just darn near impossible because they're so focused on what they're explaining. And this tool actually opens up their thinking while they're in pretty much a non-thinking and non-listening mode. And that begins to create opportunities for you to influence them or to get them to reword and explain what they're saying so that they can kind of hear it. Also, you know, the assertive is kind of like the American overseas. When we say something and the other side doesn't get it and they say, what do you mean by that? Well, we just repeat it with the exact same words, only louder. <laughs> right. Our words are so perfect that how could you possibly be so stupid as to not understand what I just said because my word selection is perfect and it's obvious. Unfortunately, my default type happens to be assertive, which was something I had to get out of. You know, I've got employees that mirror me because if I say something they don't understand and they ask me a classic opening question, what do you mean by that? You know, I'll repeat the same thing back to them only louder because I can't believe that they don't understand it. And they'll mirror me and I'll reward it. It'll open up my thinking while I'm in the midst of explaining and being mystified at how they cannot understand my explanation. So the mirroring is just until people try it, they can't believe how effective it is. And then once they start doing it, they love it. I've got one client who will mirror in every negotiation, will always mirror the other side's position. And it immediately tells them how firm that position is or whether or not it's one of their soft throwaway puffing sort of positions and how they reword it. And it gives them a great pulse, a great way to map the terrain of what it is they want and what they really want just by mirroring, and they have no idea that he's doing it to him. He does it to him all the time. It's enormously powerful. So to give a, a little example here, one of the things this old, crusty carmudgeon of a boss had said is, make two copies of all the documents. And your client said, all the documents? And he said, yeah, I'll make two copies of all the documents. And then this sort of enormity of what he was asking set in because he had to reword what he was saying, he had to think about it again because of that inquisitive tone, and then he finished, well, maybe just digital copies, which is a 10-second task instead of a 10-day task. And the examples you give in the book, there's tons of them, but it's just over and over, just repeating essentially the last bit of what they said, and I at first thought, oh, this is gonna get so irritating, people are gonna spot this, it's gonna be so transparent. And later in the book, you give an example of how your son spotted someone using this on you for an hour straight and you didn't even notice. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, I sucker for marrying all the time. And in that instance, I mean, my son finally, he just yelled at me, he said, I can't take it anymore. He's been marrying you for the last hour and that's all he's been doing. He said he was gonna do it before we sat down and, and you didn't even know it. 
And <laughs> I was kind of embarrassed, but it was true. And, and there's another instance where I was teaching someone to mirror. And I said, yeah, you know, when you're marrying someone, you listen to what they say. And if nothing else, repeat the last three words. And the person I was teaching it to said the last three words. And I said, well, yeah, you just repeat the last three words and they're going to go on and they're going to say more. And he goes, so did I just do it to you? (laughs) That's perfect. One of the other things that you do is acknowledge negatives and diffuse them. And and the phrase you use is, look, I'm an a-hole here. Because naming the negatives, labeling, as you call it, takes the sting out. You kind of bring up these negatives first. And going after that negativity brings us to a place of empathy, which is super important when we're talking about hostage negotiation or any negotiation. Yeah, you know, and I got to tell you, those of us that have gotten used to doing this with the accusations order, as we call it, I mean, we love doing this and showing off because it's just, it's absurdly powerful and it's so counterintuitive. Nobody else does it. And it moves us ahead so quickly and so much faster. We just get a kick out of it. And anytime I sense there's a negative or there's going to be a negative, you know, I proactively label it and make it go away before it ever happens. We sometimes refer to this as a matrix moment. I know I got a choice of one or two futures. And I can label the negative in advance. I could say, this is going to sound harsh. Then I could say whatever I have to say. And your reaction after will be like, no, that, you know, that wasn't bad. I, I don't know why. Why'd you say it was going to sound harsh? Or instead of using the preemptive negative label, I'll say what I'm going to say. And then it will bother you. And I can tell a difference in your tone of voice that it bothers you. And until you get a chance to let it out later on, It's going to keep bothering you, which then we talked about things that fester. And that means that ultimately when it comes out, it's going to be worse. So the uh, labeling the negatives in advance is just ridiculous. And I think I first started doing it to get myself out of trouble when I just didn't have time to argue with people and we needed to move on. I just found it was so effective and I tried it out at different times. And, you know, like you said, if somebody's managing, you say, look, I've been an a-hole the entire time. They'll say every single time they come back with, well, it wasn't that bad or, all right, so, you know, you convinced me. It's ridiculous how over-labeling a negative, how that moves you forward very quickly. One thing that I use a lot that I noticed in the book, and I love this technique, and I didn't even necessarily realize it was a technique until we started fleshing it out in the book. Coming in on the back of an argument is a great place for a negotiator. The other side is always desperate for this empathetic connection. I use this, I feel like, at airports all the time. Whenever anybody's complaining about something and I'm next in line, the first kind of gut reaction is, oh man, this guy's making her so mad, she's gonna be so annoyed. But if you come in there and you label it, right? You come in on the back of that argument and you label it, it's really easy to get somebody to open up to you right away. It's You just form a team almost instantly. Yeah, that was a great case and great instance. And my student that did that, I mean, he was so set up by the people in front of him. It's almost like having somebody warm the audience for you in a, in a reverse way, right? I was stunned at how far he got. You know, he ends up getting booked onto a flight and getting an upgrade before the seats were officially open, just because the airline attendant knew they were going to be open and he established such a a connection with her by labeling. And like you said, coming in on the back of an argument, it was huge. Again, it was almost unfair. Essentially, the person in front of him in this line for the flight was so upset, really leaning into the flight attendant, really leaning into the person at the gate. 
he thought, I'm screwed now because she's super, super upset. So the first thing he did was say, wow, seems like they were pretty upset. And she said, yeah, you know, I hate doing this to people, but yeah, these flights are full. And he kept expressing empathy. And then, of course, a little bit of mirroring and boom, he ends up on the next flight by getting an upgrade, which she didn't process for the other guy who was being kind of a jerk. So I find that just being able to put yourself in this juxtaposed position of, oh, I'm the cool laid back guy who understands your plight. You're so much more likely to get good service or to have your problem solved because that person is now on your team versus yelling at them, why can't you do this? Oh, you guys need to get your shit together. That never really works. And uh, it's a really tactical way of saying you attract more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, right? Sometimes people say, well, well how do I do that? And so how you do that, and I gotta tell you, I think that's what makes our book great. And it's just not my book, but Paul Roz contributed significantly to it. This is how you do this stuff. You know, a couple labels, a couple mirrors, you know, those ridiculously simple little things. You sit back, you use a, a nice, uh, nurturing, uh, deferential tone of voice, and you let the stuff work its magic. And he, he gets a seat on a flight that isn't even technically vacant yet, just because the woman working behind the counter was going to make those seats open. That was one of the craziest things that I ever saw. I just loved it never split the difference. There's a lot more on bargaining, negotiation, some more tactical things, things to do and not to do, including your concept of the black swan, why you should be careful with the words fair, things to really look out for. And of course, peppered here and there with Philippine kidnapping and different hostage situations that illustrate the points that you're making in business as well as in the field. So Chris, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you tell the AOC fan? You know, there's a phrase, never be mean to someone who can hurt you by doing nothing. And everybody understands the universal truth of that. Nearly everybody that you interact with on any level, doesn't matter what the interaction is, they could hurt you by doing nothing. What's also true is the flip side is, there's almost no instance when you're interacting with someone where they couldn't help you by doing something if they just liked you enough to do it. You know, if you just mirrored or labeled like that woman with the airline did. I was talking to someone the other day that said, yeah, you know, we cut all these licensing deals for music with Sony Corporation. And, you know, they got these people that rotate in and out and there's no negotiation because we just send them an email and we contact them and they check. And so there's no negotiation here. It's all moving forward and there's no negotiation. And I remember thinking like, you know, I guarantee you, everybody that you interact with has a choice of whether or not to put your request on the top of the stack or on the bottom of the stack. And if you treat them as if they're clerks, they can't do you any good and they're not going to be there tomorrow, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to take your request and put it at the bottom of the stack and delay you by two weeks. And the person that came on the phone after them, who mirrored and labeled with them and used a different tone of voice, they took the request and they put that on the top of the stack and they got service in 24 hours. And if time is money, then you have just cost yourself lots of money by not taking a few more moments in a conversation and mirroring and labeling and seeing if you can't gain an edge. So in my view, there's never a single conversation where you can't gain an edge and save yourself a lot of time just with the application of a couple of these ideas. Chris, thank you so much. Much appreciated. We'll link to the book, Never Split the Difference, in the show notes as well. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Really interesting stuff. I love this book because of the stories of the bank robberies and the kidnappings and the hostage situations, but it's really well done in how he ties that into 
sizing up the person on the other side of the table, figuring out how to talk to the people in their language, in their religion, using rapport and generating more rapport and getting people to flesh out their own thoughts so they come to the same conclusions as you. It's really, really cool. There's a lot of overlap with what we do at our live programs, which I find fascinating because I always love learning more about why what we teach works. And of course, I think I'll be uh, checking out some more of Chris's stuff as soon as he's got it available. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Chris on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including, of course, the book, Never Split the Difference. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode, and we link to the show notes directly on your phone. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm, and it's a great place to interact with me there. I love talking with all the show fans and the guests on Twitter, and I also post articles and other things people who like AOC might find interesting. Of course, join us as well in the Social Capital Challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or in the USA only text CHARMED to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. It's all about improving your networking, rapport, connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop connections and relationships with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, along with regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It will make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text CHARMED in the USA to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at the Art of Charm podcast dot com.